Welcome to the never-ending quest for clarity. This is Loving Liberty with Brian Hyde. Well, hello there, and once again, welcome to Loving Liberty. We've got a lot to cover in today's show, and thank goodness... We have two full hours to do it, so let's dive right in. I don't know if you have heard any of the rumors, but, uh, oh, man, the media is going nuts right now. Well, you know, the Tooele Department of Health, the Tooele County Department of Health, has issued a closure order for the uh, amphitheater in which the the, uh, Colin Ray concert is to be held this coming Saturday. That's the uh, amphitheater at Studio Ranch out in Grantsville, Utah. And I, I guess they figured they had an emergency meeting yesterday so they could declare, you know, the, the need to to issue this emergency closure order. Why? Well, because uh, they say the permit process has not been followed. Uh, we had Eric Mutsos on the show yesterday from the Utah Business Revival. No permit was ever going to be given. OK, health officials, for whatever reason, are, are unwilling to yield even a molecule of whatever perceived authority they think they have at this point. And so it is up to the people to stand up and lead out. And uh, the concert is going to go on as planned, order or no order. Now, this could, of course, result in some uh, legal ramifications. Maybe a fine will be levied against the property owner. If that is the case, I am prepared to stand up and put my money where my mouth is. I will be donating to to help the owner of this property, uh, you know, defray any costs if, in fact, that's the way that uh, authorities decide to go. But bottom line is, if you hear uh, rumors in the media... I know there are some who are milking this, you know, the the biggest purveyors of fear porn are milking this for all that it's worth. Well, you know, now that it's been shut down, are you relieved? And, um, you know, you can con- try to convince yourselves all you want. Oh, it's shut down. It's not going to happen. It's happening. And if that makes you angry, I don't know what to tell you. I mean, you can stand there and make frustrated noises as people drive by to go have fun and support these businesses and to hear Colin Ray uh, put on a concert. But why not just, you know, get on with your life and stop trying to control people. Stop trying to assert yourselves as if you are in control with this clipboard and these rules. I am in charge. I will make everything right in the world. You can't. And today I'm going to spend some time talking about why it's important that we stand up and and just take charge. This is not uh, the seditious act that some are going to portray it to be, although I'm sure there are those who are, are quite freaked out. You know, the, I don't know why. The, the, the people with small souls, the ones who, who uh, really get a thrill out of exerting some kind of control over, over other people, the Karens and Kyles among us, they, they seem to have a real problem with this. But there are some very good reasons why it's essential that we, the people, you and I, Stand up and stop taking orders or begging permission from bureaucrats. And it starts with things like as simple as the pursuit of happiness. Judge Andrew Napolitano actually has a terrific essay. We'll start with him. And and this lays down some of the basis for why there are times you have to push back. If you're going to live as a free individual, you've got to have the courage and the, the testicular fortitude to stand up and say no to people who think that their authority somehow, uh, you know, can go places where um, it, it clearly has not been explicitly given. He says the governors of all 50 states and the mayors of many large cities have assumed under themselves the powers to restrict private personal choices and lawful public behavior in an effort to curb the spread of COVID-19. Now, Napolitano says they've done so not by enforcing previously existing legislation, 
but by crafting their own executive orders, styling those orders as if they were laws and using state and local police to enforce these so-called laws. And presumably when life returns to normal and the courts reopen, prosecuting the alleged offenders in court. That sound about right? Judge Napolitano says it's hard to believe that any judge in America would permit a criminal trial of any person for violating a standard of behavior that has not been enacted into law by a legislature. He says we know this because our system of representative government separated powers and guaranteed liberties. Only the legislative branch branch rather, can craft laws and assign punishments for noncompliance. This is Constitutional Law 101. Supreme Court Justice Neil Gorsuch has written that if the executive branch that the executive branch cannot enforce a law that it has written, if it does, we will have approached tyranny. And then he asks the question, so have we approached tyranny already? Well, during the past 8 weeks, governors and mayors have closed most businesses, public venues and houses of worship, prohibited public assembly and restricted travel all of which they have unilaterally decreed to be non-essential. In his terrifying novel, 1984, which posits a future of total control of all persons by the government and total control of the government by one political party, George Orwell argued that he who controls the meaning of words controls the laws as well. And Andrew Napolitano says that Orwellian truism has been manifested like never before here in America, where executive branch office holders have used state and local police to restrain people from engaging in private and public behavior, which they concede was lawful two months ago, because today it is not deemed essential. And he says, frankly, I'm surprised at the ferocity of police enforcement and the lameness of police compliance. The police have taken the same oaths to uphold the Bill of Rights. It's not a Bill of Safety, it's a Bill of Rights, as have all other office holders. The police also know that it is unlawful for them to obey an unlawful order, particularly when they use force. So the lockdown orders are all unlawful because none of them, none, has been enacted by a legislature. And all of them, all, interfere with fundamental liberties, each of which is guaranteed, guaranteed by the Constitution. Now, he says, don't misunderstand me. I recognize the scientific value of personal efforts to control contagion. But under the Constitution, the social distancing, wear your mask, shut your business, stay at home edicts constitute mere recommendations that should induce rational, voluntary compliance because government in America is without lawful power to compel compliance. The governors complain about resistance. They need to know that Americans will resist efforts to interfere in behavior that remains as moral, natural, lawful, and constitutional as it was 60 days ago. Last week, President Donald Trump, sounding fed up with gubernatorial presidential or gubernatorial rather lockdown rules, declared that religious worship is essential, meaning in his opinion, all houses of worship should be opened. And he offered that he was prepared to override any governors who disagreed with him. Now, when he realized that he lacked any authority to override even unlawful gubernatorial decrees, he dispatched the Department of Justice to begin filing challenges to governors in federal courts and to argue that constitutional freedoms are being impaired by the states. Now, Judge Napolitano says, I applaud this, but it's too little too late. Where was the DOJ when Catholic priests were threatened with arrest for saying mass or for distributing palms? And when Jewish rabbis were put in COVID-19 infested jails, for holding funerals. At all these religious events, 
folks freely chose to exercise their freedom to worship and to take their chances. These DOJ interventions provoke the question, who should decide what goods, services, or venues are essential, the states or the federal government? That question is Orwellian because the answer is neither of them. The government in America, state or federal, has no power and no right to determine what goods, services, and venues are essential. Those determinations have been for individuals to make since 1776. And those individual choices have been constitutionally protected from the feds since the Bill of Rights was ratified in 1791 and from the states since the 14th Amendment was ratified in 1868. He says what's essential to the laborer or student or housewife may not be essential to the former Goldman Sachs partner who was elected governor of New Jersey and who decreed last week, it shall be the duty of every person or entity in this state to cooperate fully with his orders or essential to the ideologue who is mayor of the Big Apple and who for all his professed liberality threatened to close permanently, permanently businesses and houses of worship that flaunt his guidelines. A duty is undertaken voluntarily or by nature, not by executive command, Governor Murphy, and the government cannot take property away from its owners except for a legitimate public use and only for just compensation, Mayor de Blasio. Judge Napolitano says governors and mayors can make all the dictatorial pronouncements and threats that they wish, but they cannot use public assets to enforce them. And when they seek to use force, those from whom they seek it should decline the offer. And some of us are willing to take chances and even do non-essential things. The essence of the freedoms for which we have fought since 1776 is the liberty to be ourselves. It's a pretty good starting point for, uh, for this hour of the program. Look, I, I find myself struggling not to feel a, a little degree of contempt towards the people who think, well, it's our duty to shut down this, this uh, you know, concert coming up on Saturday. Why? Because we said so. And I don't think they quite grasp that this is not within their purview. They can make rules. They can stand there and wag their tiny fingers in impotent rage that, you know, the people aren't obeying what, what they're telling us to do. But to sit there and hide behind safety, well, we don't even know if there's enough, uh, you know, uh, you know, toilet facilities uh, at the venue. We don't know if there's going to be security because, yeah, we're cavemen and we could never figure that out for ourselves. Sure. Now, this stuff is all taken care of. I'm looking forward to the event. If you're within driving distance, I would invite you. Please consider joining us. We are back. This is Loving Liberty. Thank you so much for joining us today. And please hold your calls until the next hour. I know I'm hitting some hot buttons, and I'm going to be hitting them all through the rest of this hour of the program because, uh, well, because, because freedom matters. Because we are standing at a crossroads right now. And if we just tuck tail or roll over and show our bellies and say, well, you know, I guess somebody said I have to do this, so I probably better just, you know, do what I'm told. You're going to see your freedoms uh, greatly diminished. They've already been under attack for generations. But I think those generations that follow in our footsteps are going to look at us with wonderment and maybe not a small amount of contempt if they don't see that we made no good faith effort or that we, if they didn't, don't see that we made a good faith effort to try to preserve these things and stand up 
where we need it to. There's a terrific article. Eric Mutzo shared this yesterday on Facebook. It's from Spiked Online. The title, The Public Must Lead Us Out of the Lockdown. The political elites have lost the plot over COVID-19. The people must take over. This is from Brendan O'Neill, who is an editor, the editor of Spiked. And he says, there was a fascinating clip on the news last week. ITV was reporting from a crowded beach in Brighton. People were sunning themselves, chatting with friends, necking beers, all to the fury of lockdown fanatics, of course, who view pleasure, these pleasure seekers as selfish, unwitting murderers. You're killing people, as the demented cry goes. During ITV's report, a man holding a bottle of beer and mingling with his family said something really revealing. Quote, I know we're down here drinking beer, but if we carry on the way we're going, I think we're going to have a major lockdown in two weeks and we're going to see a massive rise in deaths again, end quote. So he was breaking the lockdown or at least infuriating lockdown fanatics while simultaneously genuflecting to one of the core commandments of lockdown ideology that individual bad behavior can cause social mayhem and even death. Now, Brendan O'Neill says it was a telling snapshot of where I think many people are at right now. Instinctively, growing numbers of people are bristling at the lockdown, recognizing that it is, it is deeply harmful to work, life, social life, and liberty itself. But they know you aren't meant to hold this view, far less act on it, so they make a performance of fealty to the lockdown strictures. So overbearing is the lockdown ideology, so widespread is lockdown conformism among the opinion-forming set, that people recognize that opposing it is a socially risky business. You'll be demonized, Twitter-shamed, branded a killer. You'll be reduced to a covidiot. <laughs> to be a lockdown apostate, to question the rituals of social distancing is not a pleasant experience. Brendan O'Neill says, indeed, our beer drinking friend, despite publicly swearing allegiance to the cult of lockdown, was still judged to have lapsed too far from the lockdown belief system. He was mauled online. He should be denied medical treatment if he requires it during the second spike. He's helping to bring about the lockdowners cried. Let him die. Now, his expression of devotion to the gospel of lockdown was not enough to save him from the Twitter mob. His sin was too grave, his joy over that cold beer too iniquitous. No amount of bowing to the lockdown narrative could wash away such a moral error. Like the heretics of old who made a desperate last-minute conversion to godliness but still got burnt by the yapping mob anyway, our Brighton friend failed to convince the self-elected pol policers of lockdown fidelity that he's one of them. Saying one thing and doing another, expressing support for the lockdown while breaking it on the sly, is probably widespread in lockdown Britain. But Brendan O'Neill says, in a sense, it's a healthy hypocrisy. Speaking to some people's skepticism of the lockdown and their willingness to take risks to do things that are essential to the human soul. Have a beer on Brighton Beach. Visit family members. Pop into the office. Swing by a sexual partner's house. He says these are good things, as nutritious to the individual as food and exercise are. Despite what the lockdown fanatics might think, man cannot live by Morrison's microwave meals and dog walking alone. We need connection, engagement, touch, art, religion. It is testament to the nanny state's successful reduction of human beings to units of health that so many in officialdom think it's acceptable to deprive us of social, spiritual, and sexual interaction for so long. Now he says, but there's also a serious problem with this healthy hypocrisy. 
it confirms the dominance of one way of thinking. It speaks to a tyranny of wisdom, in this case, the wisdom of lockdown, that people feel they must bow before, the, before even if they disagree with it. That people feel they cannot join together their personal breaking of the lockdown with a willingness to publicly challenge the whole idea of the lockdown. This demonstrates the power of conformism and the supremacy of the technocratic elite's worldview. Brendan O'Neill says polls capture in the partial way that polls do this tension in lockdown Britain. On one hand, polls show widespread support for the lockdown. At the start of May, a month into this unprecedented shutdown of economic life and social life, an opinionum poll found that four out of five people were in favor of extending the lockdown and were opposed to easing the closure of schools, pubs and restaurants. But other polls also find that people are breaking lockdown. A few days after that opinion poll, another survey found that 29% of Brits had broken the rules. What was most striking is that this confession to sinfulness by 29% of the people was only possible because the poll was anonymous. When the polling is not anonymous or when there's a possibility your name will appear alongside the heresy of breaking lockdown, just 3% admitted to doing things they aren't meant to be doing. Just as a quick aside, 3%. There is significance in that number, but it it may be lost on some people and not so much on others. The disconnect between public backing for the lockdown and anonymous public breaking of the lockdown is fascinating, says Brendan O'Neill. He says it suggests there's a significant minority of what we might call shy libertines out there. People who've been exercising their freedom in defiance of strict rules, but who are shy about saying so. They live part of their life outside the lockdown, but they tell pollsters, oh, the lockdown's great and must continue. Now, in a sense, he says this isn't a new phenomenon. People have been saying things they don't really believe to pollsters for a long time. And such dishonesty with pollsters tends to grow in times of huge social pressure, when a culture of conformism makes it clear that deviant thinking will not be tolerated. In the U.S., they call it the Bradley Effect after Tom Bradley, the black mayor of Los Angeles, who in 1982 failed to win the race to become governor of California, despite being ahead in the polls for a long time. Sociologists believe the intense growth of political correctness in the 1980s encouraged people to tell pollsters, yeah, I'm planning to vote for the black candidate, even though they weren't, so that they would be considered good people. He says in the UK, we have the shy Tory phenomenon, where in the 1992 general election, and even more pointedly in the 2015 general election, Opinion polls continually underestimated the Tory vote in a cultural climate in which it was considered bad to be a Tory, where much of the education, commentary and popular culture was oriented toward Tory bashing and depicting Tories as greedy, uncaring people. Many voters opted to tell pollsters a little white lie rather than risk being considered unkind and un PC. Historically, he says this trend has been referred to as a spiral of silence where fearing isolation or demonization for their views People cease to express them openly, according to pollsters. And a similar thing seems to be happening in COVID Britain, if anything, even more intensely. He says the political conformism on the lockdown is staggering. There are virtually no political voices challenging it. The media, from the broadsheets to the tabloids, have been feverishly pro-lockdown. They've been pho- they have photographed and shamed lockdown breakers, the Twitterati, the foot soldiers of correct think, have branded people who want to ease the lockdown as selfish, dangerous killers. In such circumstances, it is not at all surprising that even people who are rebelling against the lockdown are telling the measurers of public opinion that they support it. 
He says political shyness is never a good thing. When people are reluctant publicly to express certain views, that means our societies are not as free and open as we should expect them to be. It shows that a plurality of opinion no longer exists in a meaningful way. In normal times, that's bad. In the time of COVID, it is positively lethal because it means the increasingly destructive lockdown is not being publicly challenged, even by the people who are sinning against it in their everyday lives. What a refreshing point of view. we got to break away here for a moment. We'll come back and we'll finish up. Again, this is Brendan O'Neill writing for Spiked Online, and this is Loving Liberty. We'll be right back. Hey, once again, welcome back. This is Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde. I'm sharing with you right now one of the best articles that I have read in recent days. This is from Brendan O'Neill from Spiked Online, talking about how the public must lead us out of the lockdown. And uh, and he's got a pretty solid take on uh, what it's what is happening, not just in Great Britain, but uh, but I think everywhere that you have seen these lockdowns and people who are maybe breaking the lockdown on the sly. Still feel like, well, but publicly I have to express, you know, that, oh, but I'm very much in support of this. You know, we got to got to cover our bases. And here's something that he points out. He says, COVID conformism must be confronted. The reason is because in their echo chambers, where they're all trying to outdo each other in their levels of commitment to smashing the COVID, the political and media elites have become increasingly blinkered, dogmatic and intolerant on everything related to COVID-19. The lack of relaxed, freely stated opposition to their lockdown mania means they become madder and madder in their commitment to it. The corrosion of freedom of thought in relation to COVID-19 has deadly consequences because it means the lockdown endures nine weeks now when many people know in their hearts that it's wrong and deeply damaging to the future of this country. So he says the public has to step up. Our political leaders and cultural elites cannot be trusted to lead us out of lockdown. They've invested too much of their reputations in this unhinged policy. A huge step change is required in the UK. And he says the public must bring it about by chipping away at the lockdown and even more importantly, arguing against it in the public arena. Now, what he says about the UK is as true right here in the USA. And I'm going to reiterate that. One of the most powerful arguments that we can make is not to stand there with with placards and signs and shouting slogans back and forth, you know, at, at people who oppose this, but to simply speak with our actions and get back to living our lives. And that is exactly what I intend to do. And hopefully many, uh, many more people will join me on Saturday in showing up at Grantsville for this Utah Business Revival free concert and business market. It's not a protest. So don't mistake it for, you know, we're all going to be standing around chanting slogans. We're not. What we're going to be doing is something far more important and far more persuasive than shouted slogans. We are going to be living our lives, enjoying time with family and friends. And, you know, some people may be wearing, you know, personal protective equipment. Some people may be exercising, social distancing. Yeah, so be it. If that is what they feel makes their life better, let them do it. But despite 
pronouncements from officialdom and uh, bu- bureaucrats who feel that uh, they, they have uh, more power than they actually have, people are going to show up and we're going to have a good time. And, and permits will not be necessary for this to happen. Private property rights are going to be respected, at least by the people who are attending this concert. Government, well, you're going to have to work on it. Your record right now is looking a little bit shaky as far as, uh, you know, whether or not you are willing to respect private property rights and, uh, well, proper limits of your power as well. All right, I'm going to shift gears here. Saw an excellent essay on the Foundation for Economic Education's website. Carolyn Brashears is the author. How to Maintain Human Dignity Under House Arrest. Lessons from a novel set in Stalin's Russia. And the subtitle here says, What if your government sentenced you to remain in your home, not for a few weeks or months, but for life? She says, This is the premise of Amor Taul's A Gentleman in Moscow, a novel in which a Russian aristocrat is sentenced to house arrest in 1922. Now, she says her university students selected Towles novel as the final text in their course on favorite books, unaware that they would be replicating the protagonist's experience by the end of the semester. Towles novel imagines how an individual finds purpose and freedom within the nightmare created by Stalin's government. And it offers valuable lessons as we face government prohibitions that have had devastating consequences. The novel opens with a poem foregrounding the theme of purpose and the transcript of a trial of Towel's protagonist, Count Alexander Rostov. The charge? Not what he has done, but what he was born, an aristocrat. An aristocrat. Identity politics, it seems, is nothing new. Nor are government orders for confinement. In Towel's novel, the guilty Count, now a former person, is sentenced by the People's Commissariat for Internal Affairs to house arrest in the Metropole Hotel, where he must vacate his luxury suite for a tiny room in the attic. Surveying his new quarters, the Count adopts his, God, adopts his godfather's advice. If a man does not master his circumstances, then he is bound to be mastered by them. The Count takes Robinson Crusoe as his model. Rather than cry or die, the world's Carusos learn new skills. They study their surroundings, looking for opportunities. The Count finds them in the company of a precocious nine-year-old, Nina. As they explore the hotel, he realizes that the building he thought he knew is full of unexpected possibilities. He kicks a hole through the back of his closet into the next room, which he transforms into a study. And the effect is profound. A room under the governance of others seems small. But the room that is secret is as vast as one cares to imagine. To master one's circumstances, one must start with the mind. Now, the Count's mental refinement, like his birth and former wealth, inspires loathing among the communists. They seek to eliminate not only economic inequality, but individual difference. The Count's expertise in wine, for instance, provokes a jealous waiter at the Boyarsky restaurant to file a complaint with the Commissar of Food, objecting that the existence of our wine list runs counter to the ideals of the revolution, because it is a monument to the privilege of the nobility. To To paraphrase a modern revolutionary politician... Do we really need a choice of 23 kinds of wine when children are starving? All labels for the restaurant's 100,000 wine bottles are removed. The waiter triumphantly tells the count that there are now only two wine selections, red or white. Never mind the differences among the wines. As in people, they can be ignored as long as we pretend that they are the same. 
the equality signaled by the new universal form of address, comrade. The word is used in greetings and in partings for friends and for foes. And thanks to the word's versatility, the Russian people had finally been able to dispense with tired formalities, antiquated titles, bothersome idioms, even names, the Count reflects. Now, the Count's contemporaries greet the idea of equality with enthusiasm. His friend Mishka, a writer, anticipates the universal end of ignorance and oppression. Nina, now older, joins the shock workers in collectivizing the Cato district for the common good. Within a decade, they change their minds. The problem? Central planning. Like many modern politicians, Joseph Stalin and his committee Goss plan had a plan for everything. The first plan, 1928 to 1932, was intended not only to make the nation an industrial leader, but to improve agricultural efficiency through collectivization. Instead, millions died from starvation. Such tragedies provide ample evidence of the fatal conceit, F.A. Hayek's term for politicians' assumption that they can know enough centrally to plan economies. This conceit drove Stalin and inspires many of our leaders today in everything from creating new programs to responding to COVID-19. So keep in mind, a government that begins by restricting some will eventually restrict all. While Nina and Mishka initially support the communist programs, they ultimately experience its terrors. Mishka, editing Anton Chekhov's letters for publication, is informed that he must omit a passage in which Chekhov praises the bread in Berlin. Offended by the censorship and its effect on writers, Mishka rebels and is sent to Siberia. Nina sees her husband arrested, sentenced to five years of corrective labor, and sent to Sevostlog. She follows her husband, asking the Count to care for her daughter Sophia for a month until she is settled. She never returns. Towell's novel reflects the reality that in the end, communist Russia trapped everyone. Russia began restricting immigration emigration, that is, after the revolution in 1917, and tightened control over time. While our current situation in lockdown may be temporary, we should be leery of ever expanding restrictions on travel and work and purchases, especially the ones that seem like arbitrary nonsense. In the end, Mishka found his truth in creating a book titled Bread and Salt, the Russian symbol of hospitality. It consists of a series of quotations from famous texts with bread capitalized and bold-faced. The last one is from Chekhov's letter. The Count also finds purpose in caring for Nina's daughter, Sophia, who becomes a pianist. When she has the opportunity to travel to Paris for a performance, the Count becomes a man of intent. Rather than see her trapped in Moscow for the rest of her life, he orchestrates her escape and his own. Carolyn Brashear says, As my students wrote in their final papers, the Count models the purpose and resilience we all need Now, his final choice also demonstrates what's at stake, not just his own freedom, but the freedom of future generations. He tells Sophia, urging her to go, one does not fulfill one's potential by listening to Scheherazade in a gilded hall or reading the Odyssey in one's den. One does so by setting forth into the vast unknown. What an amazing quote. We've got to take a break. This is Loving Liberty.
And we are back. This is Loving Liberty. Thank you so much for being part of my audience today. It is May 28th in the year 2020. This is the first hour of the show, final segment, and I am so glad that uh, you could join us. I, I'm going to keep pushing this throughout the show today, actually, for the next couple of days. I'm sorry, but I, I feel like this is important. You really should consider coming to attend the free concert and the business market that will be held at the uh, amphitheater. Let me make sure I get this right. The amphitheater at Studio Ranch in Grantsville, Utah. Easy enough to find. Punch it into Google Maps. Come and join us. You are going to hear various uh, accounts in the press. Well, now, officials in the Tooele County Health Department have issued an emergency closure of that amphitheater. They don't want that event to take place. And it is true. Some bureaucratic functionary has put words on a piece of paper saying this cannot happen. But it's going to happen. And I'm going to be there to help make sure that it happens. I would ask you to consider lending your support as well. This is something that uh, that has to happen, not so much in the spirit of a protest or in the spirit of even even civil disobedience. But we've got to stop standing around waiting for someone to give us permission to live our lives. Now, maybe you're wondering, well, Brian, is there is there not risk in having a large public gathering like this? Of course there is. And there is risk every time you go to the grocery store and every time you touch the gas pump when you're fueling up your car. There is risk when you are standing in line at Costco or when you're walking into Walmart. There was risk in both of the earlier events that drew over a thousand people each sponsored by the Utah Business Revival. There was risk in the uh, spiritual revival that they had a couple of weeks back. There's risk. So, yeah, there is risk. But knowing what we know about COVID-19, about who is at the greatest risk from it, what we can do to protect ourselves and to minimize those risks, many of us have weighed the odds and said, I'll take that bet. And for those who would say, well, you have no right to infect me. You know, if you if you have the if you have the guts, if you have the backbone to come up and ask me that face to face, well, you know, why, you know, why are you here or how dare you, you know, put me at risk? The first thing I'm going to ask you is, have I infected you? And you better have an answer. ready. if the answer is no, then go find something else to do and stop bugging me. And if the answer is yes, I'd like to see the proof. I'm tired of it. I'm tired of the bullying. I'm tired of this this slavish mentality that says, you know, we all have to embrace the fear. And if you don't embrace the fear, you're a dangerous person. I'll have to paraphrase the saying, but essentially, when everybody loses their marbles, when everybody is is embracing insanity. The person who has retained their rationality is seen as insane. The one who isn't going along with the crowd is going to be portrayed as insane. And if for no other reason than to demonstrate that there are plenty of us who have rejected the the worldview of, you know, we must all be in fear and we must all be masked and we must all be waiting anxiously for the latest pronouncements or permission from someone in a perceived position of authority. No. I will show by my peaceful actions that that is not the case and that I can live a happy and productive life, and I'm encouraging you to consider doing the same. I already know that there are, there are some friends that I'm going to see there. I'm looking forward to seeing them. And I see a lot of the same faces because I see people who are truly committed to uh, exercising their liberty. They're not going to be put into a cage by some bureaucratic mandate. 
masquerading as law. All right, I got to get off the soapbox here. This is I, I get worked up over this, but it's I, I understand that there is a necessary degree of resistance that has to be a part of our character if we're going to be a free people. It doesn't mean you resist everything. It doesn't mean you have to be contrarian in everything. But you've got to know where to draw the line. And and the thing that frightens me far more than the coronavirus or the potential of coming down with this illness or potentially infecting even a loved one is the concern that I feel when I see how many people have uh, just rolled over and gave it up without so much as a second thought. I get it that they're scared. I understand that they feel nervous and they don't they don't know for sure what can I do. I don't know. I'm not I'm not an epidemiologist. Well, considering how wrong many of the epidemiologists have been, maybe you should rethink taking your advice from them and the politicians who are hiding behind their skirts. Well, but science, but data, but science. You want to be a free person, you got to act like a free person. And that means you've got to you've got to be willing to step up and live as a free person without waiting for someone to give you permission to do so. What a radical idea. But the divide that you're seeing, I mean, it's it's not even so much left versus right. What we're seeing is the, are you pro freedom or are you pro paternalism? I'm going to post in the show notes today an excellent essay. It's a pretty lengthy essay from Richard M. Ebling. This is published on the American Institute for Economic Research website. Freedom requires resisting coronavirus pessimism. Let me hit a couple quick high points here. I'm from the government and I'm here to help. Richard Ebling says this line has become a cynical joke among large numbers of Americans, and it often cuts across differences of political opinion, considering the role and activities of government in modern American society. This has continued with the government's response to the coronavirus, especially the longer it goes on. And he says the public policy arena is filled with proposals for how to handle the remainder of the crisis and for what will follow when it's over. And then he asks, what do Americans think about all these proposed solutions and what do they expect from the government versus relying on themselves and for solutions through market transactions and voluntary associations of civil society? In other words, do people want more personal freedom of choice or more political paternalism now and in the future? Based on the number of public demonstrations and angry instances by growing numbers of people calling for the end to the shutdowns and the restrictions on people's movements and interactions that have been imposed by, especially, the state governments in conjunction with federal authorities, he says the impression could easily be made that many, if not most, Americans want government out of the way and less intrusive. He goes into some details about how trust in government has long been trending down. And yet, at the same time, people want more and more government spending. Yeah, we want our cake and we want to eat it, too. And also, people have been trained to expect more from government in the virus crisis. And yet, there's still a lot of mistrust and cynicism about government and how various government leaders have handled the crisis. There's a lot of uncertain costs that now come along with these increased government burdens. And he goes into great detail on this, how the pro-spending policy views have been building up for decades. And by the way, this isn't just from the political left. I know it's easy to, to lapse back into, well, it's the Democrats and the Republicans, or it's red states versus blue states. 
look, it's it's the uh, pro-paternalists versus those of us who are pro-freedom. Now, you might feel like this is a time to be pessimistic and maybe even despondent about the political and economic shape of things to come. Richard M. Ebling reminds us, friends of freedom have been here before. This was certainly the case during the Great Depression of the 1930s. With rising totalitarian collectivism on the continent of Europe in the forms of Soviet socialism, Italian fascism, and German national socialism. And then, of course, the expanding role and presence of government in American social and economic life, the New Deal, the changing political sentiment that all of this was inescapable and inevitable. It's, it's easy to feel pessimistic. But he says, actually, we are being given openings and opportunities to make the case for freedom. First, he says, to explain as persuasively as we can, there are no free lunches at the feeding trough of government. That's an opportunity we have right now. He says there are socially high and economically debilitating costs associated with dependency upon and controlled by those in government, even at times of serious hardships like those being experienced by many in America today. And secondly, he says, it leads us to an explanation that we must share with our fellow citizens. However serious the dangers from the coronavirus for the physical health of the society as a whole and those especially in certain age categories with medical preconditions or in particular racial and ethnic groups, he says the economic nightmare has been man-made by those in political power on the basis of incomplete scientific knowledge and faulty best practice methods of dealing with the virus through harsh, counterproductive, forced quarantining of huge segments and sections of society. This is a chance not only to pull society away from the social and economic abyss towards which it is moving, but he says here is an opportunity to return it to a path more in the direction of personal liberty, economic freedom, and equal individual rights under partial rule of law and constitutionally limited government. But to do this, Richard Ebling says, it requires resisting the pessimism that all is lost and irreversible and having the courage and willingness to try to restore the free society. Amen. I think it's a great thought. This is Loving Liberty. Hour 2 is on the way next. Next. 